Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of December 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Vanessa Beely. Well, the good news is we're safe, Mike. The government has saved us all. Uh, yes, the government has saved us all. Uh, the Pfizer vaccine has been approved. Now, we're going to come on to this in uh, quite a bit more detail uh, later on in the programme. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to, to put that up front. The Pfizer vaccine has been approved and the BBC had Matt Hancock on this morning yeah. uh, for a quick statement. Now, I want to watch that uh, because, uh, well, just listen as he gets towards the second half of uh, this little uh, statement and see how he begins to fall apart. For so long, we've been saying that if a vaccine is developed, then things will get better in 2021. And now we can say, when this vaccine is rolled out, things will get better and we'll start that process next week. So I'm obviously absolutely thrilled with the news. I'm very proud that the UK is the first place in the world to have a clinically authorized vaccine ready to go. The huge thanks to the scientists, to Pfizer, the, the company, uh, obviously to my team and, and Kate Bingham and Alok Sharma, the business secretary, who's done a huge amount of work on this. But what it means for people is that from next week, we'll be able to start rolling this out. We'll start with those who are most vulnerable to coronavirus. And it will, uh, you need two jabs, so 21 days apart. Uh, so, and after that, we will start protecting people as this the protection comes with these uh, these these two uh, jabs um, and it, it will help save lives. And then once we've started to um, protected the most vulnerable, it will help us all get back to normal and uh, and, uh, uh, and and back to all the things that we love. So I'm sorry to inflict him on everybody at all, but I just thought it was important that we see his mental state because frankly uh, i'm not convinced that he's in a terribly secure mental state himself he started to break down in the second half of that little uh presentation there he didn't really know what he was saying no because he's got nothing in his head that's original this is all stuff this, these are sound bites that have been pumped into him he's he's been reframed he can't think for himself we're going to be looking at some mps that clearly can't think for themselves somebody in the chat box mentioned blue peter and I'm going to stand up for Blue Peter, a very good programme and pretty cruel to um, say that uh, Matt Hancock is, is anywhere near their standard. Um, well, look, uh, let's welcome Vanessa to the programme. And uh, Vanessa, just before we get into, uh, into what the BBC have been doing with, with you, uh, let's uh, just, just give us your thoughts on Matt Hancock and, and uh, what he's announced. That was a seriously flaky announcement. Um, I mean, of course, what what is the, the the sinister undertone is the fact that the vaccine is going to be given, in his words, to the most vulnerable. Now, we know that the most vulnerable are those that the government has already been condemning to death um, in care homes. And my understanding was previously that the vaccine was not effective for people over 55. That was a previous message put out, unless I'm mistaken. Um, so I think what we're seeing are, are MPs, spokespeople stumbling through their script because effectively, as we probably all know, the script isn't coming from within the government, of course, it's coming from 
um, the transnational global elite that are pushing the, the great reset through with COVID-19 as the portal um, to the future they envisage for all of us. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, now, uh, let's just, well, as I say, we will come back onto the subject of uh, the, the announcement of the Pfizer vaccine in more detail later on in the programme. But uh, we want to get back to the BBC here and, uh, and what they've been up to. Now, we mentioned this the last time you were on the programme. Vanessa, let's just remind everybody uh, that they had announced that they were going to produce a series of programmes on Syria called May Day. Uh, and uh, it was under the Intrigue series, actually. So uh, episode four then was entitled May Day Hoax Producers. Uh, and it featured you fairly heavily. Uh, now, let's just uh, start off with, with a little clip from, from this. Uh, if I can remind myself uh, uh, where this is. Here we go. And uh, let's just have a listen to this and then we'll, uh, we'll comment on it. Keep Talking's a forum where the far right and far left converge. This is where Vanessa Beely, an anti-establishment activist in her 50s, has taken the stage. Um, what I'm going to be doing, I hope, and I'll try to keep it as brief as I possibly can, um, is to demonstrate really the high finance, what I call um, philanthro-capitalist billionaire network that is actually behind many of these regime change wars or these humanitarian... Here she is speaking about one of her favourite subjects, the idea that James Lemesurier was a secret service agent running a propaganda outfit in Syria. And it's possible she would have remained here on the conspiracy theory circuit with a tiny fringe following if Russia hadn't joined the war in Syria. So I just wanted to start with oh, that, Vanessa, sorry. because this, this, <laughs> this tired old trope that they roll out every time, that, that it's all Russia, Russia, Russia. And, um, and I think back to, the, to when we started uh, the, the investigation into, uh, into the White Helmets and so on. And actually, Russia hadn't a clue at that time. <laughs> I mean, Russia came in so late to the game. I mean, yes, they intervened in Syria in late 2015, um, but I don't think they picked up the White Helmet story. And it was Peter Laval, um, you know, largely sort of out on a limb who decided to do a program with myself and Patrick and Eva. And that, from memory, was October 2016. So when Russia intervened in Syria, it took them a good year before they even started to kind of put their toe in the, the white helmet water. Um, so I, I mean, I'm sorry, I shouldn't really be laughing at poor old Chloe, but I, honestly, I, I mean, it's it, uh, the entire May Day program actually reminds me of Yes, Prime Minister, because it's almost every single possible cliched attack you can think of that she rolls out with this kind of deadpan voice. And it, it gives me the giggles. I actually, I can't listen to one series after another, I'm having to kind of um, limit myself to one a day because it's, it's not great listening, Chloe. Sorry. Yes. Well. Well. Let's just. Well. Look. Let's just remember what uh, what Chloe. Because here is Chloe. Uh, Hajima, how do you pronounce this? Hajimathu. Hajimathu, I think. Yes. Right. So Chloe. So this is the the journalist uh, in inverted commas who was responsible for this program, uh, and uh, so she had, if you remember, approached Vanessa 
if our viewers remember from the last time you were on, one lawyer who we've spoken to tells us that someone who spends time with Syrian ministers and who is publicly calling for humanitarian workers to be bombed uh, may be liable to face charges of aiding and abetting, inciting or conspiring to commit a crime under international law. This would appear to apply to you. Uh, and she said, you're a pro-Assad anti-establishment activist. You allow yourself to be used as a tool by and you pro promote the propaganda of the Syrian government. Uh, the Syrian government has provided you with visas and state escorts and suggested places you could visit. Now, uh, oh, and that just one final one here. Uh, you have not contacted the White Helmets, Mayday Rescue or James Lemazur uh, when he was alive and his family to, in order to check your facts or get your, uh, the response to your, to your allegations about them. Now, we covered this quite heavily on the, the last time you were on, so I'm not really going to uh, get into that particular uh, approach directly. Um, but of course, part of the problem is that once uh, the, well, I've seen some people now calling them the legacy press. I think this is a good, a good name for them because it implies that there's a new media coming along, which there is, of course, and it's uh, ordinary people. Um, and uh, yeah. so, so, you know, but they have, what they have done is they've opened the door to, to more and more investigations. And actually we find that they're not in such a position to be claiming the moral high ground with respect to anybody else. Um, and so uh, uh, this is this is the, the the key point of what we want to cover this morning is your article on your personal uh, website here, The Wall Will Fall. And the question is, did the BBC use Nural Dinzinki supporter as researcher for the May Day series? Now, first of all, just remind everybody uh, who and what uh, Nural Dinzinki uh, is. Um, well, Nural Dinzinki um, was uh, an extremist armed group um, operating inside Syria, formerly actually sponsored, funded by the United States. Of course, that probably means by the entire coalition. Um, <clears throat> they worked um, often under the control of Al-Qaeda and Nusra Front, although there were occasions on which they claimed that they had split from Al-Qaeda, etc. But in July 2016, um, they were responsible, or members of Nora Dunzinki were responsible for the heinous torture and beheading of a 12-year-old child, Abdullah Isa, um, who was actually taken out of hospital, tortured, and then beheaded, despite begging them to, to just kill him humanely. Um, it is also worth mentioning that that execution um, took place 200 meters from a white helmet center, also in Al Ansari Aleppo, which is where the execution took place. I've actually visited uh, the square where uh, Abdullah Isa was killed. I've walked from there to the white helmets, and from the white helmet center, you could have seen what was going on and you could have intervened. But of course, as we know, the white helmets were embedded with and worked exclusively with these violent, savage armed groups. Um, now, uh, the researcher that you're talking about is called, well, you better t explain how to pronounce his first <laughs> name, but it's a Mr. Habak. Mm-hmm. What, how do you, yeah, what's his I full mean, name? basically... A Abed um, Al-Qadr, is that it? Yeah, uh, uh, Abed uh, Al-Qadr Habak. Yeah. Uh, and, and he, well, let's, uh, he was involved in, in this, to start off with, a Channel 4 report yep. called Aleppo, yeah. uh, Up Close with the Rebels. Yes. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the British Foreign Office training a bit later on, or do you want me to mention it now? You can mention it. Uh, we, we may come back to it, but you can mention it, absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, I think, um, because it's an important factor in this, um, the recent uh, UK Foreign Office document leak 
um, demonstrating the extent to which British intelligence and the British Foreign Office were involved in um, producing and managing um, the PR, the public relations and the media activities for the armed groups operating inside Syria. And when I say armed groups, of course, that's a euphemism for terrorist groups. Um, now, some of those outreach agents um, were ARC, Analysis, Research and Knowledge, um, which, of course, employed James Le Mazurier when he co-founded the White Helmet Organization in Turkey and Jordan in 2013. Another uh, member of those outreach agents um, was Basma Syria that um, has been sort of basically mothballed and has morphed into another organization. But if we look at those two alone, so first of all, ARC, of course, as I said, um, manufactured the white helmets. Um, ARC also was responsible for the training of so-called um, citizen journalists and activists operating on the ground inside Syria. All of these organizations were providing um, media activists, members of armed groups and so on for interviews with the BBC and Channel 4 and CNN and Al Jazeera, etc. Um, so Sorry, they were Vanessa, effectively... just, just, let me, just let me interrupt there for a second because this is a key point. I want you just to expand on this a little bit yeah. because because what what they've been doing, I'm talking about the BBC and, and, and other organisations, Foreign Office backed, um, have been... Mm -hmm training journalists in countries like Syria, but Syria was what we're talking about here. Then they've been using those journalists that they've trained as their effectively uh, witnesses on the ground for what's been going on. Yeah. They've, they've become stringers. And this is this is vitally yeah. important, I feel, because that, that we stress this. It's because what, Yes, because what the, what the BBC and others are doing is is uh, creating the news themselves by by making sure the only people, the only voices that ever heard on British media are the people that they have themselves trained with the narrative that they want to then uh, uh, proceed with. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, it, in those leaked documents, it states quite clearly that the activists and journalists should abide by UK policy on Syria, right? I mean, that is very clearly stated. Um, Incostrat, another organisation, another outreach agent, um, which was actually established by James LeMessurier's uh, third wife, Emma Winberg, who has been one of the, the leading drivers behind this BBC Mayday series to try and smear all of the detractors of James LeMessurier and the White Helmets. Um, Incostrat was responsible, and again, it says very clearly in the documents, for providing, um, in inverted commas, witnesses for BBC, for fabricating, effectively fabricating events for the BBC and for Channel 4 and so on to portray a certain image from inside Syria. In other words, of course, we know that that, that will be an image to criminalise the Syrian government and its allies. So, yeah, these outreach agents were working effectively um, for the Foreign Office to provide corroboration, yet again, just as the White Helmets do, for UK foreign policy in Syria, which we know to be um, regime change. But this is important coming up to this um, Aleppo uh, up close with the rebels. Now, why is it important and why was that a necessary preamble? Because Abd al-Qadir Habak, we'll just call him Habak, um, was trained by ARC and by Basma. He actually states on his Facebook page that he's a freelancer for the BBC. Um, I think he says Channel 4, and for um, he was trained by ARC. 
Um, on his original page, he was working with and trained by Basma Surya. So as I say, all of these are outreach agents. The importance of ARC, of course, is, as I said, it also created the White Helmet. So here we have a conflict of interest in the May Day program because Habak is being used to defend the White Helmets against accusations of organ trafficking by Syrian civilians. And yet he was created effectively by the same organization that created the White Helmet. So here is a conflict of interest that is not examined by Chloe or even admitted by Chloe in her interview with Habak. Now, um, this program made by, or this report produced and published by uh, Channel 4, um, actually the, the, the armed group that you see there and to the right of Habak, Habak is, as you've rightly um, pointed to him with the arrow, but on his right, direct right, is the man that was actually responsible um, for the beheading of Abdullah Isa in July 2016. So in my view, what we've seen here, and I haven't had any response from Krishnan Gurumati on Twitter, I have asked the question, um, <clears throat> is effectively, I believe, uh, Channel 4 commissioned Habak to make this report up close with the rebels. Habak made it and filmed um, Noral Dinzinki, the group um, that six months prior had murdered the 12-year-old child. Um, you can see him in shot, as you said. When this program was released <clears throat> with Krishnan Gurumati's voiceover talking about the fact that this, you know, these are groups of Islamists, Kathy Newman introduces Habak at the beginning or, or says that he's the cameraman. Um, she also makes the statement that this is the first time, of course it isn't the first time, that the so-called rebels are fighting alongside Al-Qaeda. So not only is he filming Noral Denzinki, child beheaders who lost US funding on the basis of their war crimes, um, he's also filming with groups that are working alongside Al-Qaeda. Um, the film was actually pulled by Channel 4 after it was pointed out that all of this information and the fact that there was a white helmet actually involved in the attack. Um, he's seen uh, in the footage with his white helmet um, pullover on. So the, the film was pulled by Channel 4. It's no longer on their channel. They've never issued any statement as to why they pulled the report, but it's pretty clear that when the public um, spotted the Noral Dunzinki child beheaders in the program, um, they raised a fuss and Channel 4 decided to pull it down. Um, but of course, when I queried with um, Chloe by email as to why the BBC had used a researcher, because he's listed as a researcher on the program, and as a witness to provide cover for um, the potential of white helmets, organ trafficking, child abduction, et cetera. Accusations that are levied against them by Syrian civilians, not by me personally, by Syrian civilians that lived under their occupation. It was pointed out to her that Habak had worked with armed groups that were responsible for war crimes inside Syria, at which point she vehemently defended Habak, told me that all of my information is incorrect, and that Habak had never worked with and with in capital letters any of the armed groups. Now, this is palpably untrue. Not only did he work with the armed groups, he was trained to work with the armed groups by the UK Foreign Office. I mean, this is the whole point. The Foreign Office 
embedded journalists, so-called journalists, with the armed groups to provide footage and um, <clears throat> narratives that would serve UK Foreign Office policy. So very clearly, he was actually trained. He was fit for purpose. He was fit for the purpose of working with the armed groups. Um, OK, well, look, uh, somewhere else that he pops up then. Uh, and I have to say, uh, yeah. over the years, Vanessa, as we've covered what's happened in Syria, if there's one event that really jumped out at me and really got me emotionally, it was the Rashdeen massacre of the people on the bus, including the children. It was a terrible event. And you published uh, this article on, on 21st century war, victims of Rashdeen betrayed and politicized by Western media, exploited by the white helmets. Uh, that was in 2017. But we find the same guy carrying a child uh, at that event. Yeah, and I've again, I've asked publicly um, on Twitter, question of Chloe and her back is, where is this child now? Where was it taken? Um, and has this child now been returned to its family? Now, um, the testimony that I received, again, you know, Chloe has accused me of inaccurate reporting from Rashdeen, but that's the big difference. I was in Rashdeen the day of the attack. I then followed up regularly with the families, um, particularly the families of missing children that are still missing. Um, <clears throat> we saw images of um, injured, dead, dying children being piled one on top of the other in the back of um, a truck with a Nusra Front logo in the back of that truck. Those children were taking, as, as far as we know, to Jarablus and to the Turkish, and closer to the Babel Hawa, which is closer to the Turkish border, which is an area largely dominated and controlled. It's a trading hub for Al Qaeda. Um, I've had various interviews in Syria since this event, and the fear is that many of those children that are still missing, I think it's still around 50, um, have been taken for organ trafficking. So the question remains, um, why was Habak operating in Rashdeen, which was an area controlled by Al-Qaeda? And as I pointed out to Chloe, another point, um, journalists can only operate in areas controlled by Nusra Front with the permission of Nusra Front. This means they have to be uh, friendly to Nusra Front. Um, therefore, by default, Habak was friendly to Al-Qaeda, or he would never have been allowed to film the Rashidin massacre or any other event where Nusra Front were involved. Um, and we get other clues from his, uh, is this his Facebook page, uh, where he's really mm -hmm. uh, mourning the death of a, of a, of what? Of who, who is it? This, An uh, armed group member, another right. armed group member. Um, and we've got him here uh, with uh, with his arms around a couple of more armed group members. Um, so look, you have uh, that. That's not him. That That's actually Ahmed Mojadidi ah. on the right hand side. On the left hand side is Sheikh Abdullah Mohaizani. Now Mohaizani uh, is the leader of Fatah, uh, hang on a minute, Fatah Sham, I think. Um, uh, or oh, Jaysha Fatah, sorry, my mind's gone boggled up. Um, but Mohaizani um, is a Riyadh-trained fanatic cleric. Um, I do believe he's on the US terrorist hit list. 
Um, he's responsible for the training of child suicide bombers. And this was during a visit to Aleppo in 2016, just before the liberation of Aleppo in December 2016. And on the right, the small guy is a guy called Ahmed uh, Mojadidi. And in a later video, um, we see Mojadidi and a number of other members of armed groups with her back um, celebrating under the so-called Free Syrian Army flags. Okay, so anyway, look, you have uh, you've now written uh, to um, Chloe again, and I just want to read this out. Dear Chloe, you had previously informed me that, in your opinion, the BBC researcher and commentator uh, on the accusations of organ traffic trafficking level levied by Syrian civilians against the White Helmets did not work with the armed groups, your emphasis. Um, I'm sure you're aware of the brutal beheading of the 12-year-old boy Abdullah Isa in 2016 by a brutal extremist group, Nor al-Din Zinki. Uh, were you also aware that Habak was the cameraman on Channel 4 report? We've covered that. Uh, and you go on to say, perhaps you'd like to add something to your previous replies to me where you vehemently de defended Habak. Do you believe that enough background checks were done on Habak? Or is the BBC happy to employ a researcher who potentially worked with child beheaders? Uh, I have the Channel 4 report downloaded, but you can easily find it online. Uh, Live leak has a download. Uh, it's called Up Close with the Rebels. I'm in the process of submitting a complaint, uh, but as I'll also be writing an article, I wanted to give you the opportunity to respond. Deadline is Wednesday, 10 a.m. After that, I'll be on the UK column. And uh, quick as a flash, I'm sure you got a response, Vanessa. Absolutely nothing. Crickets. <laughs> Crickets. You know, uh, and, and, and this is another thing. I mean, this is this is what is so extraordinary. You know, these these little rollout useful idiot journalists for the BBC, for The Guardian, um, for The Times, etc., that are sent out to basically carry out a systematic smear of people that are challenging BBC narratives. I'm talking BBC now on Syria. Um, <clears throat> Um, have the backing of this massive corporate media complex behind them. Uh, they think that they're capable of attacking what they consider to be, you know, amateur journalists, independent lone conspiracy theorists, academics, researchers and analysts. And yet when those, in their view, no hopers turn around and actually start asking challenging questions, their first response is, is to become... Uh, defensive, their second is to cry victim, and their third is to go to ground. And now, of course, even before the program was, was published, Chloe had protected her Twitter account, um, very much along the same lines as uh, Olivia Solon from The Guardian. And then, of course, what you find is that their supporters on social media start to cry, look, you know, all the trolls are out, etc. You know, this is the whole point. We are not trolls. We are subjects of this smear attack. And as such, we have effectively a right to reply and we have the right to push back questions um, that demonstrate that the BBC is dishonest, that the BBC is misleading the public again, and that the BBC is presenting a biased partisan report and is attempting to discredit the messengers rather than addressing the message or in this case, of course, the evidence. Yes, and look, uh, I just want to uh, finish by reminding everybody <coughs> of what the BBC was doing in Syria. This is Juliet Harkin, formerly BBC Media Action, uh, working in 2004. 2004 with individuals within the Syrian ministry who wanted change and tried to get them to be the drivers of that. Uh, all media development work 
in Syria has been predicated upon the idea that there can be change with, from within and you have, where you have an authoritarian regime and you find who the reformers are and you work with them. Um, but Vanessa, it's not just uh, the BBC or the UK that's uh, at fault here because of course the Netherlands uh, was also involved uh, in what was going on in Syria. So here we've got a, a, Nether a, 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 sorry, a, a Dutch report uh, let's just do a quick translation of it. Uh, Ruta <coughs> tries to stop research uh, from supporting Syrian rebels. Now, this is a pretty poor translation of the headline, but basically uh, the Prime Minister of Holland is now attempting to stop investigations into Dutch support for Syrian rebels because it wasn't just UK and US money, but, the, uh, but Holland also was pumping money into uh, uh, rebel groups in inverted commas. Yeah, and actually this is quite interesting because um, the group concerned, I believe, is Ara Sham, that was never actually designated a terrorist group by the US and the UK. Russia did insist on it being designated a terrorist group because it had carried out a, a huge number of atrocities against Syrian civilians, sectarian atrocities. Um, now, what's interesting, and very quickly, Chloe did contribute to a King's College paper on, I think it was entitled New Jihadism. Now, in that paper, there is a paragraph that equates Aral Sham with ISIS and with Al-Qaeda as um, Salafist, uh, politically driven ideologues and fanatics. Um, so effectively, Chloe herself is admitting that Aral Sham, or she's agreeing, um, that Aral Sham is a terrorist group. Now, the UK Foreign Office has stated, I think, in response to a number of parliamentary questions, um, that they work with Aral Sham as part of, my words, the external, externally managed a political process inside Syria. So what we're seeing here, of course, Rute is trying to dampen down any investigation into Aral Sham because this implicates other members of the regime change coalition, predominantly, of course, the UK. Absolutely. Now, uh, of course, this is uh, this is extremely important that we get to the bottom of this, because uh, although Syria perhaps isn't right at the forefront of people's minds at the moment, the the, the way that the, that that the BBC is is propagandizing this, continuing to propagandize this, as we've seen Channel mm -hmm. Four do in the past, is should be absolutely. Uh, recognized and we should be considering what we're hearing from the BBC on other subjects, for example, coronavirus and COVID. Well, that's one thing, but we can also say, of course, that the BBC is using these tactics in Eastern Europe. They're into the Ukraine, they're into the former Soviet uh, countries in order to inject their reporters who are going to report a completely biased reporters to what's happening. It's yes. subversion. We, the UK column has freely said that if you actually look at what the BBC has been doing in Syria and these other countries, it's fomenting subversion. And that is, that is it. We need to do more on it. Yes. Uh, absolutely. Now, uh, Vanessa, stay with us if you can. And uh, we'll just say, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. That would be very, very much appreciated. So shall we come back on to the issue of vaccines? I, I think we've got to. And we better come on to uh, Pfizer here. Um, encourage people to go to the website and have a look at this company. Uh, we were interested to see the people behind the name because, of course, the government says, oh, well, um, the vaccines uh, produced. Um, don't think you can sue the company because they're protected. 
Um, but at the end of the day, it's people behind the company that are still going to be responsible for adverse effects of the vaccines. Uh, but interestingly enough, if you have a look at the Pfizer uh, website here, one of the things they boast about is how much money they're pushing into influencing people around them. This is what this is about, £27 million. And the network, Mike, is just too detailed to get into for the for one news program. So we're in, going to encourage people to look in this. But of course, you're not just dealing with a company. You're dealing with a company that's networked and linked and joint working with governments and other pharmaceutical companies and the NHS. It's a web. So who's driving it? Well, this is the lead man, the chairman and chief executive, Albert Buller. Uh, he said he leads Pfizer in its purpose, breakthroughs that change patients' lives. Well, I don't feel very comfortable at that, but he says during 25 years at Pfizer, he's built a diverse and successful career. Well, excellent. I'm sure he's made a lot of money as well, holding a number of senior global positions across a range of markets. But this one did catch my eye. The UK public, well, sorry, I've had to put these words in, um, but what's his qualification? Well, he's a vet. Uh, not as in a veteran of the military, but in a doctor of veterinary medicine. And this did not feel, fill me with confidence, Mike. It, it seems highly appropriate. Yeah. And if that's not enough, he's also got a PhD, biotechnology and reproduction from the veterinary school of Aristotle. So I don't know what this man is, but he's big on his own career. He's a trained vet. Presumably he regards the British public as the next herd of animals for experiments. Here's John Young, Group President, Chief Business Officer. Uh, he leads a division that integrates strate uh, strategy consulting, business development, business assessment portfolio, decision analysis, global commercial operation functions. Uh, well, we get patients get a mention now, uh, as well as the patient and health impact reimbursement and access function and fights as consumer healthcare business. This is what it is. It's a business. It's about making profits. This is not about uh, caring for people in the first instance. It's about making profits for the company. But he goes on with this. Uh, he's a board member of Johnson Controls International. He's also a member of the board of uh, Biotechnology Innovation Organization and serves as a member of the UK government bioscience working group, the Life Sciences Council. So this man's not independent of government and therefore the company's not independent of government. What are we looking at here? We're looking at a web uh, of vested interests because if they work with the UK government, the UK government's gonna pay for the vaccines. That's where Pfizer's pro uh, profits are gonna come from. So let's bring in the next man, uh, Mikhail Dolstein. Um, he focuses on advancing fights as scientific leadership in small molecule medicines, biotherapeutics, gene therapies, and vaccines. Well, that may give people confidence, possibly. He leads the worldwide research, development, and medical organization of Pfizer, which is responsible for the development of all compounds through proof of concept and provides pharmaceutical sciences, safety and medical support to the uh, entire research and development pipeline and all marketed products. So this is the man, Mike, that when people suffer adverse effects from this vaccine, this will be the man that people should be looking to for answers 
and um, well, presumably for some form of compensation to the injuries they suffer. Uh, except they won't be getting any because they'll have immunity. Uh, well, this is my point. The, the, the company's got immunity. Can the individual have immunity? I'm not so sure about that, but perhaps somebody who's better versed in the law can tell us. But this is what caught my eye. Um, Mikhail advised the Obama administration on regulatory and drug development issues, as well as, quote, Vice President Biden's cancer moonshot initiative to accelerate cancer research. Uh, what did you make of that, Mike? Well, it is quite incredible that uh, Boris Johnson seems to like grabbing catchphrases and terms from Biden, uh, because, of course, Build Back Better is something that Biden used as, as his uh, catchphrase during the uh, election campaign in the yep. United States. Uh, and, uh, well, Operation Moonshot is uh, the name that the British government has chosen and Boris Johnson has chosen for the uh, mass testing programme, which uh, we're all going to be subject to. Um, so he seems to like that word as well, which seems coincidence, to presumably. Yeah, Biden, Just, yeah. a coincidence. Just a coincidence. So there we are. We've got this company linked with elements of the UK government, linked into American politics, uh, run by a man trained as a vet, but we are supposed to be, well, upbeat that uh, our lives have been saved. Uh, I'll just show this uh, organisation here, the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industry, because when you follow through from Pfizer's own sites, they're very big on the fact that uh, they are transparent. You can see exactly what they're up to. And it leads you through to this organisation, ABPI, uh, which supposedly gives full disclosure of relationships between the pharmaceutical industry and healthcare professionals. Now, I wasn't able to use it in any detail before the news, but I'm going to encourage viewers and listeners to get onto that site and really start to research who these companies, such as Pfizer, are involved in, what the relationships are, and of course, follow the money, who is paying who, what sums of money for what purpose. That's the key to unlocking what's really going on. Uh, now, related to the announcement this morning about uh, vaccines coming next month, uh, next week, uh, we had the vote last night in Parliament for uh, the tier system, the new tier system, the lockdown. Uh, and there was some discussion about that. And one of the uh, naysayers, as far as Boris Johnson was concerned, uh, was his colleague Desmond Swain. Um, so let's just uh, have a listen to what he had to say. Why will you be able to buy a pint in a sports venue without getting anything to eat? But if you order a pint in a pub, you'll have to have a substantial meal. I'll leave that hanging as the great existential question of the day. Madam Deputy Speaker, suppression in anticipation of vaccination is the reason for these measures before us today. But people have been writing to me for months, terrified that a vaccine will be compulsory. And I've responded by saying, don't be so absolutely ridiculous. It could never possibly happen. We're a conservative government, after all. And now we discover, now we discover that a vaccination may be a passport to the acquisition of your civil liberty, liberties, yeah, yeah, yeah. and without which you will have all sorts of things that you would be able to do denied to you. Can I say that that would be absolutely disproportionate to a, a virus with a mortality rate of 
verging on 1%. It would equally be a terrible precedent to set for other vaccines and medicines. Uh, so I hope that we can get away from that. The way to persuade people to have a vaccine is, of course, to line up the entire government and its ministers and their loved ones and let them take it first and then get all the lovies, the icons of popular culture, out on the airwaves singing its praises. To have any kind of suggestion of coercion absolutely feeds the conspiracy theory that we are being cowed and our liberties being taken away. Now, he then took an intervention from Steve Baker, which we'll listen to in a second. But before we get to that, a number of points about Desmond Swain himself. First of all, um, he's, although he's saying some useful things there, Brian, he's very jolly about it. It's, it's, he's quite lighthearted about it in some ways, in the way that he presents it. Maybe that's just him. Well, um, and then, sorry, Mike, to interject there. And then there's the sneer at the public by suggesting that what we really need to understand what's happening is we need the celebrities to tell us. So that comes back to what you've just shown with the amount of money yeah. that Pfizer is putting into influencers. Uh, and Vanessa, uh, that is something that, that is clear, that, that there is a requirement or a desire by people that want to push the vaccine to use influencers to help push it. Um, and uh, well, I mean, what were your thoughts on what he just said? Well, it's interesting you say that. I've just, um, feedback. Um, I've got um, an article just published at Unlimited Hangout um, on the influence of uh, the celebrity sort of cult fetishist complex, <laughs> um, namely Sean Penn, who, of course, um, through his organization that was set up to uh, ostensibly provide aid to Haiti, that's another whole story, uh, under the auspices of the Clinton Foundation, of course, um, has now uh, transformed it into C-O-R-E core and is setting up drive-through um, testing centers throughout America and has carried out something like two and a half million tests to date. So I think that's an important point that Brian made is that the assumption is by, uh, you know, the, the, the big farmer, um, the philanthrocapitalist brigades that are behind the COVID narrative, um, that this entire celebrity complex is what is needed to brainwash people into taking the tests and having the vaccination and basically um, walking very smartly and, and sweetly through um, the COVID-19 portal into the Great Reset. Yes, indeed. Okay, well, let's uh, look at this intervention from Steve Baker then and Desmond Spain's uh, response to it. Governments also got to pay attention to implicit coercion. That is, if the government turns a blind eye to allowing businesses like airlines and restaurants to refuse to let people in unless they've had the vaccination, the government's got to decide whether it's willing to allow people to discriminate on that basis. Discrimination. It would be vaccinationism, which we must, of course, resist. The other thing that any kind of coercion would do would be to set the seal on this government's reputation as the most authoritarian since the Commonwealth of the 1650s. But it is as nothing 
to the enthusiasm that we've seen from the front bench opposite for even more coercive and restrictive measures. Well, <laughs> I, I'm shaking my head, Mike, because what that man's now doing is simply not true. The, the Conservative government driving the behavioural insights team in the background, using applied behavioural psychology to change the way people think. And its boast is that when the, it's the government does it, people won't even realise how it's been done. Uh, so... Well, yeah. well, that, that's a fair point, but but I think he he is he is right in his criticism of of the Labour Party because, for example, in the vote last night, once again, yeah, they, were uh, they were silent. They did not yeah. uh, they did not vote, um, and this, of course, is being driven by Keir Starmer. Uh, what is he? Trilateral Commission? Yes, I think that's what it is. Um, and uh, so the, his decision was that they wouldn't vote. Uh, the Labour Party absolutely delighted to, that uh, that um, this draconian. Uh, lockdown is in place, it seems, uh, certainly post-Corbyn. Um, but look, coming back to the vaccine itself, uh, the Department for Health and Social Care pushed out this statement uh, today. The government has today accepted the recommendation from the Independent Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency uh, to approve Pfizer BioNTech's Bio COVID-19 vaccine for use. Uh, this follows months of Sorry, this follows months of rigorous clinical trials and through analysis of the data by experts at the MHRA who've concluded that the vaccine has met its strict standards for safety, quality and effectiveness. Well, there's a number of points to be made there. First of all, where did the data come from? Was it independently gathered? No, it was gathered by Pfizer. Pfizer run the tests on their own vaccine as AstraZeneca are doing on theirs. And, and not full tests even, Mike, well, because we'll the tests have been truncated, haven't uh, they? Absolutely, we'll come <laughs> on to that. So there's, so there's no independent analysis of this in any way. They're taking the data that's given to them and they're, okay, they're analysing that, but that only works if, if they trust the companies. And, <laughs> well, there are questions about that. But anyway, uh, it goes on to say the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisations will shortly publish its final advice uh, for the priority groups to receive the vaccine, including care home residents, healthcare and staff, the elderly and the clinically extremely vulnerable. Um, so as Desmond Swain says, uh, perhaps the first group on that list should be ministers of state, secretaries of state, the prime minister, their families. And their get, children. Yes, the children. make, make sure yeah. that everybody in, in that group uh, go first. Now, uh, the... Let's have a look at this one. The, to, aid the, sorry, to aid the success of the vaccination programme is vital. Everyone continues to play their part and abide by the necessary restrictions in the area so we can further suppress the virus and allow the NHS to do its work without being overwhelmed. And the key point here is the NHS has never been overwhelmed uh, since the beginning of this process. It isn't going to be overwhelmed this winter. Uh, and uh, certainly there are no signs of that. So that is a lie from the Department of Health and Social Care. That is a lie. Yes. Now, the question is then, how did this medication, how did this vaccine get its approval? Uh, and this is the key point. This is from a previous Department of Health and Social Care statement, but it makes the point very clearly. EU legislation, uh, which we've implemented via Regulation 174 of the Human Medicines Regulations, allow the MHRA to temporarily authorise the supply of a medicine or vaccine based on public health need. So th what Britain has left the EU, the government is telling us, but we're using EU legislation to rapidly push this approval through. Uh, it's claimed to be temporary authorization. Um, 
I think people are going to have to watch very carefully to see whether that becomes permanent authorization, whether there's any subsequent follow-up, or whether this is just there's going to be a line drawn under it at this point. I believe that's exactly what's going to happen. A line's going to be drawn it, under it at this point with no further evaluation at all. But let's come back to the BBC. Uh, COVID vaccines, who decides if they're safe is their propaganda piece of the day. And they talk about the, the procedure for the approval of this. Uh, and so they, here's the beginning of their graphic. And they're talking about typical development of vaccine on the left. They're talking about COVID-19 vaccine development on the right and the number of years involved in getting through the regulatory review. And this is just a lie, Brian, this graphic, uh, because how many months now have we been? We're now in December and this whole shenanigans started in March. Uh, so what is that? Nine months. Yeah. Nine so, months. But they're saying that in order to get through regulatory review and get vaccine approval and distri distribution for COVID-19 is taking two years. Yeah. Well, it isn't because it's a done deal. So what are they? What is this graphic supposed to be showing? I'm well, not clear. It shows very clearly, Mike, that the BBC is also lying about what's going on. And we, we've seen the BBC up to despicable things in Syria. We're now seeing what the BBC is prepared to do in the UK. The BBC is prepared to lie about the true facts regarding the, the vaccines. And uh, it's, it's here for everybody to see on their website. Yes, and another graphic from that same article, how, did some, how some of the COVID-19 vaccines compare. And they're talking about, uh, you know, how effectiveness of 90%, 95%, 92%. Uh, are these numbers real? Well, our medical advice is that they are absolutely not real. We'll come on to that in more detail in a future programme. But those numbers are not real. Uh, and the best that we can expect, if there's any effect of these vaccines at all, is a suppression of some of the symptoms to some degree, uh, but certainly no, uh, not 95% effective in the way that this is being uh, described. Now, I want to just uh, mention this. Uh, because, of course, uh, a lot of stuff going around on the Internet at the moment about whether or not these vaccines contain aborted fetal tissue. Um, and uh, the, the correct answer to that is because many people talk about MRC5. Uh, MRC5 cells were obtained in 1966 from the lungs of a 14-week male fetus. Um, these were used to produce a cell line which is used in vaccines such as those for COVID-19, right? So what is a cell line? Well, a cell line is defined as this, a clone of cultured cells derived from identified parental cell type. So in this case, the parental cell type that was used was aborted fetal tissue from the lungs of a 14-week old boy. And then those have been cloned and cloned and cloned again. So it is incorrect to say that, that there is actual aborted fetal tissue in the vaccines, but it is correct to say that there's tissue derived from aborted fetal tissue. And I'm not certain, Vanessa, whether, whether that fact uh, makes it any less ethically problematic, whether it really makes any difference, whether it's tissue from uh, an aborted fetus that was aborted last week or one that was aborted in 1966. It's still, I have problems with the principle of this. Absolutely. So do I. And, you know, when we look at the fact that um, we're having cellular meat or fake breast milk or cockroach meat for dogs being pushed on us and effectively the cellular meat, of course, um, there are reports saying that it contains um, human cells. So I have seen headlines being put out that, you know, you forget veganism, just turn to cannibalism. But, you know, it's not... It, 
these are to some extent um, parodies of what is going on, but, but there are more sinister undertones, as you quite rightly say. And we're being pushed down a route of normalizing these very, very sinister um, um, methods and processes. Yes, okay, there is an argument that, that the tissue from an aborted fetus is from 66, but the acceptance of that, that's what we need to question. If we start accepting um, these, these, I don't know, these distortions of what it is to be human being, is the best way I can describe it, then we open the door to much more. Yes. Uh, now, just uh, very briefly, Vanessa, I wanted to mention this. She sent this to me earlier on. This is from the World Economic Forum. There's no vaccine for the infodemic. Uh, so how do we combat the virus of misinformation? Uh, and let's just get a quote from this. The UN is also encouraging social media influencers. So again, no matter where you look, mm -hmm. we're talking about using influencers to try to uh, correct, in inverted commas, the misinformation that's yeah. being spread around social media uh, to help spread real news about the pandemic. So far, we've recruited 110,000 information volunteers and we equip these information volunteers with the kind of knowledge about how misinformation spreads and ask them to serve as a kind of digital first responder, a kind of digital white helmet, I guess, uh, in those spaces where well, the misinformation yeah. travels. I've been talking about this for a long time in relation to COVID-19, that what we're actually seeing now is the same hybrid war strategy that was turned against um, countries like Libya, Iraq, Syria, etc., being turned against um, our own populations. And this is an example of that. We're seeing exactly what we were talking about in Syria, the UK Foreign Office producing or, or manufacturing outreach agents, funding outreach agents to manufacture propaganda on their behalf. And this is exactly what we're seeing here. I think the UN um, social media hub is called uh, Verified. So again, we're, we're seeing the same branding, the same um, PR, the same media influencing that you've talked about before also through Sage, etc. Um, this is an information war being waged against us now. And we should take the lessons from Syria and understand what is going on. Thank, thank you for that, Vanessa. You give me a, a nice introduction to this. I tried to capture what's really happening for people. I think language is important. We describe things in the right way. So let's have a look at the real COVID policy. Don't forget that there are no minutes of that meeting between Boris Johnson and, and uh, Bill Gates. Bill Gates, medically unqualified, um, but he's now helping to dictate a vaccine policy for the whole of UK before he moves on to the world, but he has no medical qualifications and the UK public have no minutes of that, that meeting. So what can we say? Well, we know that we've had a massive withdrawal of basic rights and freedoms. Uh, we've got a curfew system in place. It's not being called a curfew, but it is a curfew. Let's call it a curfew. Uh, we've got people imprisoned in their houses, particularly if they're elderly and deemed vulnerable by the state. We've got border controls. We can't travel freely around the UK now. We can't move across the border into Scotland. Uh, we've got travel restrictions, uh, some onerous ones, particularly in Wales. We've got forced isolation of the elderly. Uh, we've got the organised killing of thousands of vulnerable elderly people, uh, well over 40,000 elderly people died unnecessarily 
directly as a result of enforced government lockdown policy. The government knew what it was doing. It knew it was going to kill thousands of vulnerable elderly people and it carried on. We've got the destruction of businesses. We've got army on the streets. Uh, we've got brutal Stasi style police arrests and utterly brutal policing with people being beaten to the ground. Uh, and Mike, you've warned about this one in your uh, reports. We've now got this massive integration of the intelligence and security services into the government. And what are they using these agents for, including the British Army, the despicable, and I'm going to call them the cowardly 77 Brigade uh, unit, spying on, the, on anybody in the British public who's dare questioning what's actually going on. So that massive uh, resource there of the intelligence services, the security services, the British Army and the police now being used to suppress free speech. This is a dictatorship and we're just watching it coming in while Boris Johnson grins in his pathetic schoolboy fashion in front of the cameras. This is a dictatorship. It is installing itself very quickly and we need people to stand up and uh, refuse it. Well, what can we end on? We'll just come back a little bit to the BBC. Um, some people in the chat box had already picked up on this story, uh, but here we've got a, a weather reporter called Gemma Cooper. She's been taken off air because she dared to attend to Piers Corbyn anti-lockdown marches. And she was also quoted as calling the uh, corporation, the BBC, the devil. That sounds entirely appropriate to me. Um, but uh, this is what the BBC does to you if you dare challenge them. She had admitted, yes, alas, I work for the devil at the moment. I joined the corporation in 1999 when I was 28 and fully asleep comatose. So what did the BBC say? Well, I've pinned this against Tim Davey, the £525,000 a year. Actually, it's slightly reduced at the moment. I don't know oh, whether that's he's, he's on trial at the moment by the BBC, so they're only paying him slightly less than this, but he, half a million pounds of public money so that this man's organisation can say that impartiality is the cornerstone of the BBC. And we have strict guidelines. All staff are expected to follow. Any breach is dealt with swiftly and seriously. Well, that quote has got to be the biggest fake news going because, of course, the BBC, as we've been hearing, and particularly with Vanessa's report, is so biased, um, it's pointless watching it now. Ah, no, 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 you're missing, you're missing the context of that because, of course, what he's talking about is, is the recent announcement that you're, if you're a BBC employee, you're not allowed to criticise the BBC on social media, you're not allowed to offer any counter-narrative to the BBC's on social media, even if it's a personal social media account. And of course, there have been a couple of uh, uh, serious breaches of of what the BBC would consider, uh, you know, fair play by former BBC uh, employees on social media in recent months. And so they've basically locked it down so that their employees cannot say anything outside of the BBC editorial line uh, on social media. Because the trouble is if the BBC employees uh, speak out, then the real truth is going to come out about what the BBC has been doing in Syria and Palestine and the former Soviet uh, countries. So if you're listening to us today from the BBC, and we were told uh, quite some time ago that uh, a senior group of uh, BBC 
uh, people did watch the UK column news every day to see that uh, what we were talking about, we're just going to say, uh, I hope the BBC brand is kicked off the air as soon as possible. Uh, but we'll add this little bit just to test out the impartiality of the BBC. I put Black Lives Matter into their uh, website search engine. Uh, very quickly, you come up with 29 pages with multiple articles per page, which are essentially full of BLM promotion. So uh, we're just going to end here, I think, with the BBC, the damaged brand. Yes. Uh, Vanessa is still with us. Uh, it's it's really yeah. sad, isn't it, that so many people across the world listen to the BBC and believe that what they're actually hearing is truth and measured factual reporting, which is on a, a, a scale way higher than other journalists could put across. They are lured into this business of believing what is a vicious propaganda machine operating in 2020. I mean, you know, it's extraordinary when you actually look at um, the blood that is on the hands of the BBC. I mean, going back to John Pilger's The War You Don't See, going forward now to their support um, and shoring up of uh, British foreign policy agenda inside Syria. Um, you know, I'm sitting here in a country that is devastated, whose people are um, living under savage and brutal economic sanctions, while these BBC talking heads for state um, effectively ignore the fact that they got that their government. No, they don't ignore the fact. They cover up the fact that their government is murdering people by proxy. It is murdering people by economic pressure. It is murdering people in Syria through its info war that is led by the BBC. The BBC is responsible for what has happened in Syria for the last ten years, and it should and will hopefully be held accountable. It will, that's for sure. Well, let's end on this one um, for the BBC. Had to bring this in. BBC report on Liverpool COVID, Liverpool's tier two move due to hard work. So the whole basis of this article is, is a terrible pandemic has been operating in the Liverpool area. Immense work, the lockdown, the tiers has all saved the population. Uh, but we were sent this, uh, which is rather different. Uh, this is a freedom of information request into Mersey Care, in which it says that the actual COVID deaths are five. Let's have a look at this document. Uh, here we are, we bring it up on screen. Further to your freedom of information request in respect of the number of COVID-19 deaths, please find a response from the trust below. Actual deaths with the trust due to COVID-19 for the period February 2020 to November 2020 in the Liverpool and for Merseyside. Um, they've, the Merseyside Care NHS Foundation Trust has had five deaths related to COVID-19. All patients that passed away had pre-existing conditions, uh, but not according to the BBC. No. We'll, we'll leave it there, I think. Yes. Vanessa, thanks very much for joining, uh, for joining us. Great to hear from you. I'm sure we should look forward to a BBC response. We'll wait with bated breath or not. Uh, but thank you very much for joining us. And can we say to our viewers and listeners, uh, thank you very much for all the support that we've had over recent months. It's been truly amazing. Huge amount of information coming in, more than we can cope with really on a daily basis. If you send things and we don't cover it, 
don't be put off give us a prompt we are doing our best but it's really astonishing the support we're now getting from our viewers and i'll end by saying thank you very much for the viewers who've now come on board from hungary uh, obviously we're reaching a new audience there as well thanks for joining us we will be back at the same time on friday bye bye bye, -bye.